Hello and welcome to the Pack Mag Parents Podcast, your place to laugh and learn. Everything we do is to make the lives of everyday parents easier. Without further ado, let's welcome our hostess with the mostess, Bree James. Well, hello, I'm Bree James and welcome back to the Pack Mag Parents Podcast. On today's episode, we dive deep into the ups and downs of motherhood because it is a roller coaster and a mother's presence in her child's life is the most important thing. It's the utmost importance for a mum to be in a child's life because we can't raise healthy children if we aren't there for them both physically and emotionally. So today we welcome back psychoanalyst and parent guidance expert and author Erica Commissar on the show to discuss why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters. Let's get her on Zoom. So we're talking why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters. Um, now, we've all heard the first seven years matters, but what about the first three? Uh, you say that they're the most critical. Is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So from zero to three, the right brain or social emotional brain of a child is developing. By three years old, 85% of their right brain is already developed. And in that three years, a parent is really responsible for most of that development, meaning the, the, the brain is very responsive to the environment in those three years. And the right brain is important for a number of things. One is regulation of emotion. So what we're seeing today is more young children with the inability to regulate their emotions, to keep their emotions from going too high or too low. Um, that means we see more ADHD, we see more aggressive behavior in young children. We, we see more anxiety and depression in children under the age of five um, because they never learn to regulate their emotions. Uh, the right brain is also responsible for resilience to stress, the ability to read social cues, the ability to feel empathy for others. These are all things that are developing in the first three years. Because your book, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, you you really talk about the importance of a mother's physical and emotional presence in their life. Why is that time so important? And the so, role of the mother, really, realistically. Yeah. Mm. So attachment security is critical. And people get very confused about where emotional security, which is the foundation of resilience and the ability to regulate emotions, where that comes from. And it really is, attachment security is not something that happens in the first three weeks or six weeks, you know, there's a lot of misunderstandings, which is why I wrote the, this book and the next book about adolescence. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what attachment security means. They think that if you bond with your baby in the hospital and you come home and you have a few weeks or six weeks of maternity leave and the baby is connected to you and you're connected to the baby, you're done. Now you can go to work and you can have somebody else care for the baby. You can put the baby in uh, daycare and everything's good, right? You got attachment security. That's the misunderstanding. That's bonding. Bonding happens either, either momentarily when a baby is born or sometime in the first few months. That's bonding. Attachment security is the first three years. And the reason I say that is it is the moment to moment soothing the baby in distress by their go-to secure object, their mother usually, sometimes it's the father, mostly it's the mother, um, their go-to person when they're in distress. And it's that moment to moment soothing them in distress 
that regulates their emotions from moment to moment. It's only after that three-year period that the baby internalizes the ability to start to begin to do it on their own. And so that's the misunderstanding that six weeks, three months, we're done, we did it, you know, good, good job. We breastfed for three months and they're secure. It's actually the, the continuous chronic returning to your secure object to get reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. It's that repetition that creates attachment security. Again, which is the foundation for the ability to keep your emotions from going too high and too low throughout life. Now, there will be some mothers listening right now that obviously, you know, had to put their child into daycare at six weeks of age because of work commitments or, um, you know, many other things. Um, if their child's older now and they're a little bit worried that they have messed up these first three years on the attachment parenting side of things, how can they make up for lost time and help reconnect on that deeper level, level and fix that attachment side of things? Good news is that there's hope because there's two critical windows of development, of bright brain development. One is zero to three and one is nine to 25. It doesn't mean that what happens in between doesn't matter. So um, between three and nine, there's a lot that's happening. There's a lot of what we call neurogenesis, or there's a lot of cell growth, a lot of brain cell growth, um, but it's about 15%. So, you know, by nine years old, the brain is, is fully neurogenesis wise in terms of the brain cells growing is done. And then from nine to 25, the brain is pruning back the extra cells, which is just as important. Um, so you could say that, that parents and mothers and fathers and adolescents have another opportunity to make a very big difference in terms of creating that emotional security and also in terms of creating resilience to stress. So uh, it's not over if you miss the first window. That's wonderful news. Wonderful news. Now, I guess in Australia, for instance, we have maternity leave for about six uh, to 12 months. It depends on the, your employer. Do you think that's long enough? Um, any advice for how much time you believe we should be having leave and things like that? We should have leave for three years. I think the only country that provides that are the Eastern Bloc countries. Interestingly, that was the best part of communism. Um, we'd say there's a lot of problems with communism. But the one thing they did is they provided three years of full paid maternity leave to mothers in certain countries. Um, you know, I think realistically, I'm saying three years because three years is the point at which 85% of that right brain is developed. But what I really mean by that is, if you can get a year of paid maternity leave, and stay home with your baby for a year. I mean, I've been fighting for this in America. America is impossible. We're the only country that doesn't have any paid leave. Um, and so, uh, and now they're proposing it for like a month or something ridiculous, you know. Um, but having said that, a year of paid maternity leave, and then if you can have an arrangement with your, with your employer to work part-time or to be around as much as possible. So what I say in the book is more is more. The more physically and emotionally available you are in the first three years, the better off your baby will be. And the kind of care you decide on is really critical. So if you can't be there, the next best care is extended family, what we call kinship bonds. That's the next best care. If you or your spouse can't be there uh, as much as possible, the next best care is extended family care. Um, and if you can't, 
If that doesn't work because you don't live near your family, then the next best thing is single surrogate care, a babysitter who then is an alternative uh, attachment figure to your child with the consistency of being there every single day. If you can't afford that, the next best is to share a caregiver with another family, which means that you break down the costs. You cut the costs, but you still have the consistency of care where your caregiver ratio is still one caregiver to no more than three children. So that's already better than daycare. So, and you know, in the book I talk about what's best, what's next best, what's next best, guess what's the least good for children? Daycare. Because the ratios are just not compatible with what we're talking about, which is a caregiver in a daycare center is gonna have a ratio of something like no less than five to one, and usually more like eight to one. In Sweden, it can be as low as 12 children to one caregiver with the caregivers out sick all the time. So if you're talking about that, and I just want you to think if you were a caregiver in a daycare center and you were trying to provide that emotional regulation from moment to moment and soothe babies in distress, could you do that for eight babies who were all crying at once? So no way. <laughs> that answers it. That answers it. So what happens is your baby's brain is exposed to too much stress too early. So what about, I guess, you know, you were talking about the care of parents and, you know, um, you know, grandparents and family members and hiring care. What about those children that have had that, but then, you know, the parent has, you know, the divorce or that one-on-one uh, -on -one carer then leaves, or even if they do get attached to their kindy teacher or their, their daycare teacher and they leave, does that impact our children? Yes, absolutely. Loss always impacts children. Any kind of loss, any kind of trauma to a child, a divorce is a trauma. That doesn't mean that it isn't sometimes necessary to divorce. Sometimes children who live in highly conflictual relationships between parents, that's also not good. So sometimes divorce is necessary, but we have to, as parents, not go into a state of denial about it. We have to recognize that it is a trauma to children. It is a major loss. Losing a babysitter is a major loss. Losing a grandparent is a major loss. Um, changing schools is a major loss. I mean, I could go down the list, but we have to be sensitive that loss does impact children emotionally and impacts their sense of security and safety. And so what we wanna do when there is a loss, again, we wanna be there to help them with their distress. We wanna be there more in those times, more physically and emotionally available to them in times of loss so we can help them to reflect and mirror their feelings and help them to process what they're feeling. Now, I want to move on to uh, mum guilt. And I mm -hmm. guess because, you know, in an ideal world, yes, we can be home for three years and or have that shared care with um, other relatives, but it's it's just not possible for many families. And I guess a lot of mums feel really guilty about that. Um, and I guess, how can we establish those necessary bonds if they've got fewer face-to-face -face hours with their young child? So I have a different take on guilt. I'm a psychoanalyst and I have a different take on it, which is I don't think guilt is a bad thing. I think, so guilt is actually technically a signal feeling like pain, like physical pain. If you break your ankle hiking, 
or playing basketball or playing football, you feel physical pain and you stop playing whatever you're playing, you go to the doctor and you say, my ankle is hurting me. And then the doctor tells you how to get better, right? For some reason, we tell women, particularly women, that guilt is not, is not helpful. Guilt is not natural and just ignore it and it will go away and your kids will be fine. We're not actually asking women to examine their feelings. Guilt is a signal feeling that tells us as human beings that we are in conflict, that we're feeling conflict about something. And sometimes when we explore our conflicts by going to talk to somebody, and we know that therapy is more available than ever now, more accessible. Um, we know that when we explore our conflicts, we, we work them through. So either we work them through so we don't have to feel guilty, or we work them through so we make different kinds of choices for ourselves and our families. But the one thing we don't want to do is just look away from guilt. We don't want to turn away from guilt. It would be like turning away from physical pain. So are there any tips, I guess, on building those bonds then if our, you know, we are having that less time with our child? Well, you know, what I say is more is more. And that's the best advice I can give you is that um, the more you can be there physically and emotionally, and as you say, many women can't be there all the time, but it helps us with our choices. So maybe we choose not to go out at night if we have to work uh, during the day. Maybe we choose to allow our children to stay up later instead of being very rigid about their bedtime. So we can spend, you know, we say pay now or pay later, right? The idea is if you can't be with them during the day, then working moms often can let their children stay up later and be with them at night. Some children who, uh, whose moms work, they sleep with them at night. Um, so the idea is get as much time as you can, wherever you can get it. Um, and that means that maybe we don't go out, maybe in the years that our children are very small, we forego our social lives or we, we minimize our social lives. So, so if we think of being away from our children as poker chips, I give you a certain number of poker chips and you can use those poker chips however you want. And if you need to use them for work, then maybe you don't go out at night as well. Maybe you're home at night with them, right? Or maybe you sleep with them or maybe they stay up longer. Um, if you can reduce your work, then you can go out at night. You only, time is a limited commodity and children need as much as, as possible of you. And so I don't know if that helps, but, but think of it as wherever you can give the time back to your children, do it. And I think it's, um, you, you know, it's a really important thing for women to learn to say no, um, because yeah. one of the things that I had to learn was every time I say yes to something, I'm saying no to myself and no to my children as well. So yeah. um, it becomes a lot easier to say no when you um, you look at your time like that and you go, if I say yes to this, that means I'm saying no to this um, with my children. So yeah. that's yeah. so critical. I mean, if you, if you can't set limits, I'm Peter Tia, who has a podcast too. He has a wonderful article he wrote about saying no. Saying no is very important as a mother. It is so, so critical that you can say no. Let me just add too that self-care for mothers is something that's, for me, self-care is, is, is critical for mothers. That if mothers don't take care of themselves, they can suffer from something called maternal depletion syndrome, which in the developing world means they can die. 
um, they can literally die if they get depleted. They have too many children and they don't have time to care for themselves. In the developed world, generally women don't die of it, but what ends up happening is they end up resenting their children and they end up um, really depriving themselves, resenting their children, and it, it serves as a barrier between that attachment to their children. And so you have to be very careful that you can say no to many of the things in life that are extraneous and not as important, so you don't start to resent your children. And that also means saying yes to delegating to other people things that are less important and saying yes to lots of support, right? Um, we were never meant to have children in isolation. We were never meant to parent alone. We were meant to parent in groups like the red tent. Um, we were meant to have other women near our side, whether it's our mothers, our grandmothers, our aunts. Um, I'm not saying that it was perfect. I'm not saying there weren't a lot of arguments in that red tent but we were never meant to parent in isolation. Yeah, you have some advice on in your book about how to select and train quality childcare um, and people that are helping you care for your children. Mm-hmm. What are some of your best tips and advice that you can give with this process? Well, again, if you're going to hire a caregiver, make sure that the caregiver is a sensitive, empathic nurturer that they are very good at soothing your child's distress rather than dismissing uh, or denying or shutting down their child's distress. Uh, So, you know, there are some caregivers that are very, very good at organizing. You know, they're very, they'll, they'll make sure to keep your house clean or they'll make sure that your children are always dressed perfectly or they have the perfect snacks in the, in the, in the pram but they aren't necessarily emotionally available uh, to your children and they don't know how to play with children. So what you want to look for is someone who reflects your own sensitivity and parents in the way that you do as a sensitive empathic nurturer. That means when your child is sad, they identify the sadness and they tune into the sadness and they comment on the sadness and they're good listeners. When your child is angry, they allow them to be angry without retaliating or getting mad at the child. And, and they say, gosh, you're really mad about that. And that must be really hard. You want a sensitive, empathic nurture over uh, an efficient nurture. Uh, you know, what, you know, sort of the, the idea of mothers who are very efficient and um, officious uh, and authoritative. That's not what you want to look for in a caregiver. Last parting words from me is, is there anything, because you mentioned on self-care and mums looking after themselves, and I, you know, was really um, interested by that um, maternal depletion syndrome, because I think, you know, even if you're, um, you know, you're giving, 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 I think even if you're not dying physically, you're dying internally and you're losing that sense of self. Um, So how can mothers continue to support our own well-being and recognize when we've got, you know, feelings that are taking over our lives and it is going, because obviously if we don't look after ourselves, we are going to have that resentful way of parenting and that's no good for anybody. So our bodies are beautiful things as women. We're incredible as women. We can 
create life. I mean, it's just incredible what our bodies can do. And we share our bodies with our children. We share our breasts with our children. We feed our children with our bodies. So our bodies do a lot. We have to take care of our bodies. We have to nurture our bodies. We have to, we have to exercise. We have to eat well. We have to get enough sleep when we can. And when we have young children, it's natural not to sleep much. And so what I encourage mothers to do is take naps. My father was wonderful. He could sleep anywhere. If he sat in a chair, he could just doze off. And what I'm going to say is you may not be able to get a full night's sleep until your child is five years old. And that's reality um, because of the way children sort of learn to sleep. And, and sleep is the first thing that's disrupted in their development. But um, mothers can sleep whenever their children sleep. So when you have a very young baby, I encourage you not to organize your kitchen or clean your house when your baby's sleeping, sleep when your baby's sleeping. Let the kitchen be dirty. That's the best advice I can give you about that. But, and in addition to that, have interests of your own. Even if the interests are playing piano or playing a musical instrument for a few minutes every day, even if it's reading an article in a magazine or reading a chapter from a book, uh, even if it's um, staying in some way peripherally or directly invested in a career that you had before, even though you might not be working in that career now, it might be reading um, one, of the, one of the journals from your career, it might be calling a friend who's in that career, stay connected. Um, so when you keep your, how should I say, keep your interests alive that make you uniquely you. I love it. Any parting words uh, on our topic today, why prioritizing motherhood is so important? Um, well, I'll just say that we want, we all have one thing in common as human beings. We want to raise healthy human beings. We want to give our children the best chance at being emotionally, physically, mentally well. And the best thing you can do for your child is be as physically and emotionally present as you can be uh, in those first three years. It's a gift that keeps on giving for the rest of that child's life. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Erica. Uh, make sure you grab one of uh, her amazing books. They sound absolutely incredible. Um, yes, we'll put the links in the show notes, but thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you want to be an expert guest or you've got a weird, wacky or wonderful product to share, don't be shy. Get in contact with our team at info at this podcast is proudly produced by PacMag. You can listen to more episodes on our website, pacmag.com.au.